us, Lord, as individuals, help us as a church to to guard ourselves against the wiles of the devil. We know that he would love to sift us like wheat, to shake us violently, but we're thankful that you are on our side and desire for us greatly that we would come out the other side of the trial having stood stood firm. And so that having done all, we would stand. Lord, help us to do that, we pray, through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 22. I'm not the guy who takes the last shot. There are some athletes that regularly amaze me. There are some who are able to do well throughout the course of a game. And then there are others who can step it up and make the big play when the pressure is the strongest. And I'm not in that second group. I play basketball occasionally and we'll be down to the last possession of the game, and I, I have had the opportunity to take the final shot many times and have missed almost every single time. So I'm not that guy. But there is one guy that, that we play with. His name is Dante, and he, he just somehow finds a way to make the big play when it's time to hit a big shot or to make a slicing drive to the basket or to make a big play on defense. He's the guy that's going to come up with that play. It takes a special person to be calm under pressure. Now, I recognize uh, this is kind of a silly illustration in comparison to what we're going to talk about, but Jesus here is in the heat of battle, and to the disciples it looks like things are spiraling out of control. And, And in our passage we'll see Him in anguish, and then betrayed, and then arrested, and then tried, and then condemned, and it feels like Jesus is out of control. So the point is that that even though it looks like things are out of control, he actually is in very much complete control. And that's what we're going to see in the text tonight. Did none of these things that happened to him come as a surprise? And so that's how it's like the basketball game with the guy who knows how to do when uh, knows how to handle the situation when things seem to be out of control. He knows exactly what to do, where to go on the court, what what play to make when it's time to make the play. Jesus is uh, is in complete control, even though things for anyone else would be spiraling out of control. Here, we're going to begin reading in verse 39 of Luke chapter 22. This is the Word of God. And He came out and proceeded, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives, And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against Him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, uh, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And about an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him and beating Him and they blindfolded Him and were asking Him, saying, Prophesy! Who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against Him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from His own mouth. Here, I think Luke's trying to establish the fact that Jesus suffered innocently and yet He is in complete control. Jesus suffers innocently. What He was charged for was not, did not have any basis. We'll see that more next week as well when we get to chapter 23. But, but as He's suffering innocently, He is in complete control. First way that we see that is that, number one, Jesus knows of His death, but gladly submits to His Father's will. Jesus knows of His death, but he gladly submits to the Father's will. Verses 39-46. through 46. Jesus sensed the agony of His coming death, and so before He heads off to pray for Himself, He, in verses 39 and 40, leads His disciples to pray. And He's teaching them the connection between depending on God through prayer and avoiding temptation. Those who depend upon God through prayer avoid temptation. And not that they avoid receiving temptation, but they avoid falling into temptation. That's the point. So that means, conversely, those who do not pray will not have spiritual strength to stand up in temptation. Have you ever found that to be the case with you? That when you're praying for God to protect you from a specific temptation that you know will come, that you have the strength to do that because God supplies but when you don't pray, you find that you quickly fall into those temptations. You don't have any strength spiritually. So notice what he says there in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
There's a connection there. When you pray, you won't fall into that temptation that's coming. Jesus knew there was a temptation coming specifically for Peter. And so He says, you need to spend this time now praying. Jesus goes away to pray Himself in verses 41 and 42. And the content of His prayer is essentially twofold. He's praying for, one, a removal of the cup, and secondly, for God's will to be done. So what does this mean that He's praying for the removal of the cup? Notice in verse 42, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. That's His first request. Well, the cup is an image that is used in the Old Testament and in Revelation in connection with God's what? God's wrath, God's anger. In the Old Testament, the prophets would often say that that the the cup of God's wrath is going to be poured out in full measure. That's exactly what's going to happen during the time of Revelation. Jesus saying, let this cup of your wrath, God, pass from me. That's what He's asking for. He knew that God was going to, as part of the judgment that He was taking upon Himself for our sake, He knew that that God was going to pour out His wrath on Him. Jesus knew that. So, what do we do when our desires compete with God's desires? Jesus gives us a good model of how to pray. What do we do when our desires compete with God's desires? We don't want to go through this certain trial, God. And so that's what we're praying for, that You would just either remove this trial from us or that You just wouldn't allow us to go into it at all. Jesus is saying, don't allow me to go into it. If there's any way... Allow this cup not to pass through me. That's His desire. And yet, Jesus also has a second desire as we see in the second part of the verse. We could call them competing desires. One desire is to remove the cup from Him, right? No wrath. But the second desire is actually a greater desire and the one that actually supersedes or trumps the other desire. Look at it in, in verse 42. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. There's desire number one. Yet, not My will or My desire, but Your will be done. So here's the trump the trump card, so to speak, with regard to His desires. God, if, if I could in, it, in any way get out of the cup of Your wrath, then I would. I would, I would love for You to do that for Me. But, here's what I want even more than that, God. I want Your will to be done. That's why he says, not my will, the removal of the cup, but your will. Not my desire, that's the idea there, but your desire. So what do we do when our desires compete with God's? Well, Jesus says, Lord, your will be done. He wants God's purposes to be accomplished. He recognizes, obviously, we shouldn't read too much into this and think, well, maybe he didn't know that he had to die in order for the sins of the world to be taken. Certainly he did. He had been predicting it all along. We've already seen that in Luke's Gospel. Uh, so, so he knew exactly what he needed to do. He knew that he needed to lay down his life. But he still had that desire because uh, the cross was getting closer and closer. Now, I need to make a note about verses 43 and 44 if you look in the margin of your Bible. It says that most early manuscripts do not contain these two verses. Okay, so again, uh, I, I often talk about textual criticism. That is, um, not that we're critics of text, but 
but people who study these things, they want to find the closest to the original that we possibly can. And so the, the, the oldest manuscripts that we have, the closest to the original, do not contain verses 43 and verses 44. Verses 43 and 44. So uh, this is probably a later scribal edition. That is, a scribe came along. His job is to basically copy the Scriptures. And, and they don't take it to a Xerox machine, obviously. Instead, they copy it by hand, often in dim lighting, and after a long day of work. So they're tired often, and so they'll add things, um, sometimes purposely to, to clarify, other times um, inadvertently. You recognize that, that the original autograph of the Scripture was inspired, but the copies were not. Okay? So the copy that you have in front of you is not an inspired copy but the original autograph is an inspired version. And so uh, these scribal editions that were added later, uh, sometimes were not, they, or I should say, every, in every case that I know of that I've ever looked at in any of these, they're not malicious in that they're trying to put in something that's non-true. Instead, they're trying to clarify something or add a little bit more um, depth to something. Sometimes what these scribes would do would, would add they would add notes in the margin so that someone who's reading it for the first time would understand kind of a little bit of the context. But then the readers would take that as part of the actual scripture, and so you could see how once that's copied, then it, over time it becomes what they think was part of the original. So that's what scholars do: try to go back and find out what was the original. And based on what we can tell from the earliest manuscripts, these two verses were not part of it. Now. Again, it's not malicious that these things have been added, so don't think heresy. There's nothing offensive in here. You know, if you look at these two verses, an angel came and comforted him. There's no problem with that. That probably very well happened. And also, his agony was severe to the point where he sweat, sweated like, is it sweated or sweat, like drops of blood. And so his agony is so great that, uh, that he is um, sweating in that way that he is deeply concerned about his coming death. So if it is a part of the original, then we would simply be reminded that Jesus does not suffer alone and that Jesus was seriously concerned about his coming death. So I, I, I tend to lean towards um, what scholars believe that it wasn't part of the original. But again, there's nothing heretical in these two verses that would lead us away from Christ. Well, in verses 45 and verses in and 46, the disciples are warned of a coming battle and they fail to prepare for this battle. Verse 45, When He arose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them... What, what did He ask him, them to do? Remember verse 40? Pray. So spend this time praying. He finds them... Verse 45, He finds them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. When the attacks of spiritual life become more severe, our primary defense is depending upon God through prayer. Do you feel like you're under attack spiritually? Do you feel like Satan would love to get a foothold in your life recently? Then your primary defense Mechanism, your primary defense weapon or, or defense uh, uh, structure is depending upon God through prayer. Do you remember the armor, the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul tells believers 
that if they're going to be able to stand firm, let's let's turn there, just look at it, so that you can see see it with your eyes. Ephesians chapter six. If they're going to be able to stand in time of temptation, they need the whole armor of God. Why? Because their enemies are not flesh and blood, are they? Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they are the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And so we need to to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and we need to be able to stand firm. Notice how he concludes this list in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So it doesn't come out very clearly in our text, but but basically verse 18 is actually connected with verse 17. So what he's saying is, take all these pieces of equipment and put them on spiritually. Put on the, the feet, your feet. Make sure your feet are shod with the preparation of the Gospel of peace. And you've got the breastplate of righteousness. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And then verse 18, praying. So as you're putting all these things on, pray. That's the idea. That's the next word in the Greek text. It is praying. The idea is that we need to be... All of our defense is dependent upon God in prayer. That In order for us to be spiritually vigilant, that we can at the end of it, at the end of the temptation, be able to say, we have stood firm. The only way that can happen is if we put on these defense, defensive pieces of equipment and do it through prayer that we are praying. Now turn back to Luke 22. The point of our whole defensive strategy has to do with dependence upon God. And so we need to depend upon Him through prayer by putting on the pieces of equipment that He tells us to and by praying. Just frankly praying. So Jesus says, listen, disciples, you need to pray. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray lest you fall into temptation. And what we're going to find over the next uh, chapter, really, in, in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus spent His time prior to His arrest and betrayal of being betrayed. He spent His time praying and He stood up in the face of temptation, didn't He? And Peter and the other disciples spent their time sleeping and they failed in time of temptation, didn't they? And, and so part of what we learn from that is the way that we there is a direct connection that Jesus is trying to point out to us. Avoiding temptation happens when we depend upon God through prayer. We are ready for temptation when we depend upon God through prayer. That doesn't mean we're always going to succeed. But we are going to be far better off when we depend upon God through prayer. When temptation comes, we will be ready. So first, Jesus knows of His death but gladly submits to the Father's will. Number two, Jesus knows that He will be betrayed but does not prevent Judas from betraying Him. Jesus knows that He will be betrayed, but He does not prevent Judas from betraying Him. Isn't this amazing? 
Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And, and here we see it in the text. Verse uh, 47. While He was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas and one of the twelve was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss Him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knew exactly what Judas was doing. Look back up to verse 21. Remember, He's uh, instituting the Lord's Supper here. They're having this final meal. And verse 21 says, But behold, the hand of one betraying Me is with Mine on the table. Did Jesus know that He was going to be betrayed? Absolutely. He said, One of your hands that is on the table with Me is going to, be betray, is going to be, betray Me. He says in verse 22, Indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that, that man by whom He is betrayed. Jesus knows that He will be betrayed, but He does not prevent Judas from doing so. What that tells us is that the death of Jesus and Judas' betrayal of Jesus was no surprise to Jesus. It was no surprise. He, he had predicted it. He planned for it. And Judas uses this opportunity to betray Jesus. He had already planned it out. We need to do it in a time when there's not a huge crowd, so we need to do it at night. We need to find a place where Jesus would be off by Himself or with the disciples and where I can hand Him over to you, the temple guard. And so He says, here's a signal. It's going to be dark. You know, He may have His hood on, whatever the case. And so I'm going to... The, the person that I kiss is the one that, that you need to take into custody. And this was a customary greeting for a student to give a teacher, to give him a kiss on the cheek. And here we have a man who is one of Jesus' closest friends and one of His closest followers, and he betrays Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what He's going to do. In verses 49 and 50, the temple guard get ready to arrest Him, and the disciples defend their King. Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I'm coming to reign over Israel on David's throne. And so the disciples are expecting for Jesus to reign, to, to win. But He's not going to go down in defeat. It can't end like this. And so as the temple guard comes to get Him, we have one of them, verse 50, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we know from the other Gospels, that it was Peter and that the name of the temple guard uh, was Malchus. And here we're also told that, that, um, that Jesus heals the man in verse 51. The disciples don't really understand what's going on. Peter very likely could have been swinging for the guy's head and trying to cut his head off and the guy ducked, or he could have just been taking a swipe at the man, whatever the case, he cuts off his ear. He's taking matters into his own hands instead of trusting what Jesus had told them on multiple occasions, which is, listen guys, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of angry men and, and He will be killed. But that's okay because three days later He will rise from the dead. He told them that on at least three occasions, but more likely five or six occasions. And they, they still didn't trust. They didn't fully understand what Jesus' mission was. They understood 
who He was, that He was the Messiah, but they didn't understand that it meant that He had to go to the cross. And so here, Jesus takes control of the situation. This is what we've been seeing in this passage. That Jesus is in complete control. Even though He knows He's going to die, He prays that the Father's will be done. Here, He knows He's going to be betrayed, and yet He doesn't prevent Judas from betraying Him, and He doesn't prevent the temple guards from from arresting Him. Instead, He takes control of the situation, showing that He has authority here. Look at verse 51. Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this! Literally, this uh, would be translated, Permit as far as this. Jesus could be speaking here to the disciples, and maybe He's saying, You don't understand the purpose of carrying a sword. That's not why I told you to bring a sword. Um, And, you know, because you didn't pray, you're not ready for this situation. Or he could have directed this statement, permit as far as this to the temple guard, saying, allow my followers to do as much. Or or don't hold this against the disciples. Let their foolishness go this far. But I, I, I'm going to correct this. And the way that he corrects it is as as the, the great physician, he heals the man's ear. Remember, Jesus was supposed to be the king of Israel. He was to sit on David's throne. But his first king coming would be a time of peace where he said, I come to to bring peace and not a sword. But he takes control of the situation by showing that he was not a revolutionary. Listen, I'm not trying to go go around getting people's heads lopped off. My my goal here is to to come in peace. I want you to show I want to show you that that following me is is a way of peace. And so he he takes the man's ear and puts it back on his head, apparently, and, and heals him in verse 51. And in verses 52 and 53, he takes control of the situation by showing that he was not a revolutionary. Here he says, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Speaking to the chief priests and the officers and the elders. And then verse 53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So he's speaking to some representatives of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who were the ruling Jewish officials. And he's saying, listen, I'm not leading a revolution here. Right? Wouldn't you expect a revolution to happen in private? They would talk... Uh, about what they wanted to do and all their plans in secret. I didn't do that. I spoke out in the, the temple. You could have arrested me there. But here's the point. I am innocent. I've done nothing wrong. That's why I spoke out in the, in the open so that you would know I'm not leading a revolution. The only reason you didn't arrest me there is because, verses 1-5, through five, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they feared the people. They feared that there would be some kind of a riot over Jesus' being taken out of the picture. He also takes um, he also takes control of the situation by acknowledging that that they have been given the upper hand for a period of time. Look at the end of verse fifty three. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. He's saying, listen, for this period of time, this earthly power that you come with in order to arrest me is a power of darkness. And it has been granted to you. In other words, you've been given permission to do this by the Father. It's no surprise to the Father either that I'm being arrested. Jesus is in complete 
control of the situation. He suffers innocently and yet is in complete control. Number three, Jesus is abandoned by His closest friends, yet He still goes to the cross for them. Verses 54 to 62. Jesus is abandoned by His closest friends, yet He still goes to the cross for them. Again, this shows that He's in complete control of what's going on. The people that He has spent the most time with over the last three years, that He loved and they loved Him, abandoned Him. And Peter is obviously that clear expression of that. As Peter wants to know what's going on, so he goes as close as he can. He's inside the courtyard of the high priest's home where they would carry on this special meeting in the evening. They weren't supposed to have any trials that happened um, during the evening, but they did it anyway because they were so set on, on charging Jesus with blasphemy and with insurrection. And so at this point we see Peter having a little bit of courage. He's coming up as close as he can to Jesus to see what's going on. And as he warms himself by the fire in verses 55 to 57, a servant girl recognizes him and says, hey, aren't you one of them? Don't you belong with this Jesus who's on trial? And apparently Peter was afraid of the consequences if people had found out that he was one of the disciples. So instead of siding with Jesus and confessing Him as Christ, as he had done before, he denies Christ for the first time. You know, it's one thing for Peter to confess Christ in front of his allies. You know, he's got all of his friends that believe in Jesus. He's got Jesus there. And, hey, do you, who do you think that I am? Well, I am the Christ. And I think that is a significant thing. I don't want to downplay what Peter did there. But here, it's a completely different thing for him to respond when he's standing in front of only opponents. No one on his side. These people have the ability to make his life miserable if they find out, if word spreads quickly whose side he really is on. And so he tries to keep a low profile, and in doing so, he does what Jesus had predicted that he would deny Christ. Well, he denies him a second time in verse 58 when someone else recognizes him, and then after an hour, the third time. He's waiting there an hour in the courtyard, apparently watching the proceedings up up in the rooms, uh, up in Caiaphas's room or whatever. And as he speaks, as Peter's talking to some of these people, they, they catch an accent. Like, wow, you sound like you're from the UP. Right? Like someone down here came to our church. Like, we know where you're from. Okay? We can tell by your accent. Um even if we only heard them speak for a short time. And so they hear that he's got this Galilean accent. You're from the north, aren't you? We can tell from your voice. And he says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not, I'm not with this man. And yet, this was no surprise to God. It was no surprise to Jesus. God had planned it. Jesus had predicted it. Verse 34. And I think one of the main reasons that Peter failed in this situation by denying Christ three times is because Jesus told him to pray. He should have been praying. Now, there's lots of things that can go into this say, well, wait a second, God had already predicted it, and even if He did pray, then He would have... Uh, we can't get into all that, but, but I think there's a direct connection between praying and avoiding temptation. He wasn't praying, and so he wasn't able to avoid falling into temptation. Peter recognizes what he's done in verse 61 and 
this very poignant picture, record of what happens. At the end of verse 60, immediately while he was still speaking on this third denial, a rooster crows. Well, that should spark something in his mind because Jesus said, when the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times by then. But notice this next line because this is really striking. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus is standing up there, probably in front of Caiaphas, on trial, going through all these proceedings. And He turns. At the moment that the rooster crows, He turns and looks at Peter. Peter catches his eyes and realizes what he has done. That he has denied Christ like he said he would not do. And that's why the text says, and he remembered what the Lord had said. He received this soul-piercing look from Jesus. And I believe that this trial that Peter's going through right here is what Satan was requesting permission for. Do you remember in verse 31? Satan has requested that he sift you like wheat. And we talked about that last week. He wants to shake you violently in a spiritual sense. Satan's goal was to get Peter to give up on following Christ. Remember what Jesus did for Peter though? But I have prayed for you. And what's amazing here is that I believe that the answer to Jesus' prayer was not that Peter was spared from the violent shaking. He wasn't spared from the trial. The answer to the prayer was that he would make it through without giving up. That's the key. Jesus said, I will pray for you. Not that the trial will be removed. It's still going to be there. But that you make it through the trial without giving up. And that's what Christ wants out of each of us. Not that we would have no trials for the rest of our lives. It's not going to happen. It's part of the way that God shows His mercy is by allowing you to go through trials and then you still hold on to Him even when things are taken away from you. That shows how much you trust in God. That shows how valuable God is. How worthy He is to be served even when things are taken away. And what God wants most out of you is not for you to have no trials, but He wants you to be able at the end of that trial to persevere, to not give up. He wants you still standing at the end. And that's why He said, Peter, after you are restored, remember in verse 34 and 35, after you are restored, make sure you go and strengthen your brothers. Teach the other disciples about this and show them how they can learn from this. Jesus is abandoned by His closest friends and yet He still goes to the cross for them. And then, number four, Jesus has the power to destroy, but allows the Sanhedrin to condemn Him. Jesus has power to destroy, but allows the Sanhedrin to condemn Him. Verses 63-69. The temple guard humiliates Jesus through mockery and beatings and blasphemy. And basically covering His head and then hitting Him on the head with a club or with their fists and saying, hey, you're a prophet. You're supposed to be able to tell the future. You're supposed to be able to know what is true and what is not. And so, hey, you so-called prophet, why don't you tell us who hit you? They mock Him and humiliate Him. And then the formal meeting of the Sanhedrin meets to determine Jesus' fate in verses 66-69. to 
when it was day. This is when the trial was supposed to begin. They actually had a trial throughout the night making it an illegal trial according to the law of Moses. They were supposed to wait until day in order to try him. And so now they actually have the day trial like they're supposed to have even though they'd already met all night. And they they start to ask him questions. Notice the first question they ask in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. It's actually a statement, but they're effectively asking, are you the Christ? But they're not really asking for the truth. They don't really want to know the answer. They don't want Jesus to tell them what He thinks. They already have their minds made up, don't they? That He is not the Christ. So they're saying, if you're the Christ, tell us. They just want a formal charge they can write down on a piece of paper and hand over to Pilate. And that's why Jesus responds as He does in verse 67. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you're not going to answer. Remember when the last time they asked about His authority? He had cleared out the temple. And and then uh, they say to Jesus, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the permission to be able to clear out the temple as if you own it? Do you remember how Jesus answered? Well, my Father gives me the authority. I have the authority because I am the Son of God. Is that how He responded? No, He said, I'll tell you the answer to that question, whose authority I do these things by, if you answer a question for me. And so, the baptism of John, was it of heaven or was it of men? And He's saying, effectively, in that answer, the same place that John got his authority, God the Father, you all recognize that, is the same place I got my authority from God the Father. It's legitimate. But they wouldn't answer these questions. And so here's what he's saying. If I tell you the answer, you're not going to believe. Verse 67. Then verse 68. If I ask you a question in response, you're not going to answer me back. And that's what they do in that, in that, uh, in that case when they were asking about his authority, right? He says, uh, they say, because we don't want to upset the crowd and because we don't want him to think he's right, we're just going to say we don't know. So we don't know. And he said, fine, I'm not going to tell you by whose authority I do these things. And that's what he's saying here. If I ask you a question to lead you to the truth, you're not going to respond. So there's no point in me doing it. You've already made up your mind. You won't believe. And yet, despite their obstinacy to the truth, he still actually gives them an answer. Look at verse 69. But, so even though you're not going to accept this, you're not going to respond to me, let me tell you something. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From Psalm 110. The Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly acknowledge that He is the Messiah. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah. And here are the three reasons why. Instead, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Again, a veiled reference to the Messiah from Daniel 7. But he's saying, listen, I have access to something greater than the earthly most holy place. You think it's such a big deal, and it is, for a priest to come into the most holy place. It is a big deal. But let me tell you something. I have access to to even greater most holy place. The most holy place in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. 
You see, Jesus is saying something very profound here. I have great power, and yet, I'm not going to condemn the Sanhedrin or prevent them from arresting me and carrying out these charges. Finally, verses 70 and 71, Jesus has authority over all things, but allows the Jews to charge Him with blasphemy. Jesus has authority over all things, but allows the Jews to charge Him with blasphemy. Because Jesus doesn't give them explicit answers, yes, I am the Messiah that you're asking about. He doesn't do that. He says the Son of Man's coming and He's going to be at the right hand of the power of God. Because He doesn't give them explicit answers, now they ask a more direct question. Verse 70. Here's your second question, effectively. Are you the Son of God then? This question is far more indicting than the claim to be Messiah. Lots of people came throughout the, the, the ages, the centuries, and claimed to be Messiah. And they're asking something greater. Are you actually the Son of God? Do you actually claim to be God in human form? And here, uh, in this passage, we have three names for Christ. Let me just point this out to you. Verse 67, He's called Christ. In verse 69, He's called the Son of Man. In verse 70, He's called the Son of God. And so we have Jesus who is who has two natures. He has, he has a human nature and a divine nature. The Son of God. The God-Man. Notice His response at the end of verse 70. Yes, I am. Literally, you yourself say that I am. The idea here um, is uh, best stated, I think, by one of the scholars called Robert Stein. He says, you have worded the question and I will not deny that I am, but I would have worded it somewhat differently. That's the idea. We have, yes, I am. I don't think that's the best uh, understanding of that. And the reason we know that is because of some of the other Gospels. It explains it more clearly. He's basically saying, listen, you're the ones who say that I am and you're not wrong. Okay? Uh, that, so, so he's, he's ex- accept, accepting that title for himself and effectively is in complete control. And he is the one. Notice, no witnesses come to the platform and decide, hey, this is what he did. No, instead, he, he uses the w- very words that are, are going to be used as charge against him, that are going to indict him. What leads to his formal charge is his own words. You say that I am the Son of God, and I'm not going to deny it. Well, that was all the Sanhedrin needed to know in verse 71. They write up charges for blasphemy. We don't need to hear anything else, Caiaphas says. We need to hear nothing else. That's plenty. You are blaspheming. As humans, our unregenerate hearts are so corrupt and blinded that the clearest expression of truth that is before us is still not able to convince us. Have you ever thought about this from the perspective of the Sanhedrin? They have the very Son of God standing before them saying that He is the Son of God and they still can't believe. They still won't believe. That's the power of a depraved soul. That's how blinded we were before we came to Christ. They had Jesus, the Son of God, standing right before him, before them and making a clear statement that He was the Messiah, the Son of God, and they still didn't believe. And oh, how these words will come to their mind when they stand before Christ in judgment. 
And I think these words will haunt their minds for all of eternity when they suffer under the wrath of God. Look at these words again. Verse 70, Are you the Son of God then? Yes, I am. And then their response, I think, also will be ringing in their ears. What further need do we have? We have heard it ourselves from His own mouth. We heard it directly from Him and we missed it. Two points of application in closing. Number one, the one who appears to be helpless is the Lord of glory. The one who appears to be helpless is the Lord of glory. Jesus here is on trial before the religious cream of the crop, the best of the best when it comes to the Old Testament. And they're evaluating Him on the basis of their standards of truth. But Jesus is making a very profound claim here in verses 67 to 69. He's saying, yes, I am on trial before you now. And yes, you are right now claiming authority over me. But, notice the last part of verse 69, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, from now on, I am going to be in the position of authority. I look weak and out of control right now, but I'm going to be in the highest place of honor. And one day, I'm coming back to judge you as the great judge of all the earth, and I'll be standing on this side of the judgment seat. I'll be the one making the choice about where you will go. You may think you have control over me right now, but I actually have control over you. The one who appears to be helpless is the Lord of glory. Does that that ever ring true in your life today? Sometimes you go through life and it feels like He's helpless. Our God, our Savior is helpless. He's out of control. He's not coming in to, to spare us from this abuse and and humiliation that we're receiving from a lost world. And what we need to see here is that God is very much in control, isn't He? Of all of our circumstances, even when it feels like God is helpless. He's far from it. Number two, Jesus is coming in judgment. So don't be fooled by the sparkle of the world. Jesus is coming in judgment. Don't be on the wrong side of God's wrath. The judgment that comes on the world is called the day of the Lord. And so we need to be prepared for that day. Salvation comes not from believing that Jesus is innocent. Lots of people think that He was innocent. It requires a belief in and a consent to and an unreserved trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ Christ on your behalf. I mean, Pilate believed He was innocent. And he was far from God. If Christ is the Son of God, as He claimed to be, then we must follow Him with our lives. And if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ and turned from your sin, it's not too late. God is patient. He's a patient God. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He wants to come and offer forgiveness to you when you repent. So yes, God is patient. And it's not too late now. But there is coming a day when it will be too late, when God's patience will be exhausted, when He will send His Son in judgment. And that Son will sit on the throne and everyone will know that He is God 
and that He has the authority to rule as judge. And that He has earned the highest place of honor in the universe because He's conquered death through the resurrection from the dead. And so I say, if you don't respond to Jesus now, and when you stand before judgment, it will be too late. So now is the opportunity to follow Him today. Christian, don't give up in the race. Don't believe for a moment that Satan is winning. God has it all under control and He's working out everything for His great glory. And so our job is to to show that we love Him by being faithful to Him and by calling others to do the same. And, And guarding ourselves against temptation by praying, by depending on God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that our Savior was in complete control all the way up to His death and following it. And Lord, we admit that there are times when we go through life and we see the sparkle and the glimmer of the world and the pleasures that there are in this life and and the pleasures of um, peace. We, we don't want conflict with a lost world. We, we just want ongoing peace, but we know that, that as Christians we will be persecuted, we will be mistreated um, because of our belief in Jesus, and we're thankful that you are not out of control or helpless, but that you have all things under control and that you're working out all of these things in our lives for our good, that you're bringing about patience, endurance, uh, more holiness, You're eradicating sin through some of these trials. And so we depend upon You and count on You to accomplish Your purposes through us. Help us to depend upon You in prayer by uh, depending, uh, by by planning and and by uh, hiding Your Word in our hearts and, and being prepared for temptation by putting on